After World War II, the United Nations gave part of the land of Palestine back to the Jewish people as a new homeland. Many Jews returned to the land, feeling they would not be safe in other countries as minorities. But they wouldn't be too safe back in Israel either, seeing that the Arabs who lived there were not too happy with giving up their land to the Jews. So not long after Israel became a nation again in 1948, war broke out where an alliance of Arab nations tried to push them into the sea. Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and Iraq all united to attack Israel. They were defeated, though, and all this took place 70 years ago. Since then, five major wars and a number of smaller conflicts have erupted in that region all over the presence of Israel. Tensions continue with no end in sight. But this feud goes back much further than 70 years. Arabs and Jews have been at enmity for centuries, most Arabs being Muslim. The Quran instructs them to attack Jews who don't convert to Islam, and they've been at odds for centuries. But did you know this conflict goes back even further? In fact, the Bible gives us a glimpse into the origin of the divide between Jews and Arabs. Although this conflict has surely taken on a life of its own over the years, it has its genesis back in Genesis chapter 16. Abraham was married to Sarah, but she was barren. So he fathered an heir through Hagar, their Egyptian handmaid. The angel of the Lord then visited Hagar and said this to her, Genesis 16, verse 11 and 12. He said, behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone. And everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all of his brothers. Ishmael's descendants would become a great people of their own, but would be known for aggression. After this, though, God told Abraham that his wife, Sarah, would have a son of her own, even in her old age. This meant that Ishmael would not be the son of promise but Isaac would be. A year later, Isaac was born, and immediately Sarah turned on Hagar. She wanted Hagar and her son Ishmael driven out so that he would not share in the inheritance with her son Isaac. This greatly distressed Abraham, but God spoke to him and reassured him this was all part of his sovereign plan for the nations. There's more going on here when it comes to God's plan for the nations than Abraham could understand. But just on a human level, look at the fruit of Sarah's partiality. It drove these brothers, Ishmael and Isaac, forever apart. From Isaac, of course, you know, came the nation of Israel. But Arabs traced their ancestry through Ishmael. In fact, most Muslims believe that Ishmael was the true child of promise and that Abraham almost sacrificed Ishmael on Mount Moriah, not Isaac. Biblically speaking, though, we can say that Jews and Arabs are brothers. They're kin. Yet they have pretty much hated each other ever since. And humanly speaking, this can all be traced back to the the sin of favoritism and partiality. And this trend of partiality resulting in strife would only continue. Isaac himself would have two sons, Jacob and Esau. And what do you know? Genesis 25:28 says, "Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac favored Esau 
Like he, he was a manly hunter, but Jacob was basically the mama's boy. Still, Esau would not be the child of promise. Jacob was to be the child of promise. And it was again, though, on a human level, this injustice of family favoritism that drove these brothers apart. And the descendants of Esau came to be known as the Edomites. And they became another long-standing enemy of Israel. We're not done, though, because Jacob himself eventually had children, 12 sons of his own. And you can guess what's going to happen. Genesis 37, 3 and 4. It says, now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. And so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. And as a result of this favoritism and partiality, Joseph's brothers hated him. They, they thought about murdering him, but they settled on selling him to slavery. It only drives people and families apart, this sin of favoritism, whether it's in the family, in a people group. It results in conflict, strife, hatred, even murder. Now, God in his sovereignty can use all of this, of course, and he does. He can turn evil into good, as he did with Joseph going down to Egypt. You know that story. But that doesn't change the fact that such partiality is a real sin and injustice before God, and it comes with disastrous effects here on earth. This, as we mentioned, is still being played out today between Jews and Arabs, and countless other families and groups have been torn apart by the injustice of partiality. Favoritism destroys family unity, doesn't it? Well, all of this is true, similarly, for the church. The church is not a club or an organization. It's a family, the family of God. And favoritism has no place in this family. When it occurs, though, it strikes a division in the body and it tears brothers and sisters apart. The supernatural unity of the church is sacrificed over petty differences, and it should not be this way. But the sin of partiality is alive and well, even in the church today. It's essential that we pay attention to it, that we understand why this is such a serious sin and threat to the unity of the body, and that we seek to remove it wherever it is found. And this is all that we will learn and more from James chapter 2 this morning. So you can open your Bibles now to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We just finished up the first chapter of James. Only took us three months. The pace picks up, though, because here in chapter 2, James devotes half of the chapter to this one issue, the sin of partiality. The fact that James gives so much space to this topic suggests this was a real and significant problem in these early Christian communities. James is writing to scattered Jewish Christians who were being oppressed and persecuted. This led many of them to start compromising the faith. The word that they heard, they were not so apt to do. But outward religious formalism is not enough. Rather, the true disciple will follow Christ and really live out all of his ways. And this includes a genuine love for God 
and a genuine love for others. So James finished up chapter one by giving a representative portrait of what this looks like. This is what the true doer of the word looks like, the true worshiper. It's one who bridles his tongue, who visits orphans and widows in their distress, who keeps himself unstained by the world. Last time we found that James brings these examples up as they represent the purest expressions of love for God and love for others. Right on the heels of this, though, as we enter chapter 2, James transitions to a very specific subject. It is discrimination against the poor. Now, the poor may not be orphans and widows per se, but they're just as needy and vulnerable and in distress. And we are called to show love to them too, right? But it's a huge inconsistency in the faith when the church is not doing that, but is instead favoring the rich, catering to the rich. This is a contradiction of the royal law of love, to love your neighbor as yourself, as we will see later. And so James writes to now address and correct this issue in the churches. And he's going to devote half the chapter, verses 1 through 13, to this issue. But for our time this morning, we're going to start with verses 1 through 4. So let's read now James 2, 1 through 4, and get acquainted with this new subject. James 2, 1 through 4. He says, My brethren, Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? In many ways, James is here calling the the church into court to convict us of this favoritism. The sin of partiality comes with so much fallout in the world and in the church. It should have no place in Christ's church. And so it needs to be understood, identified, and then rooted out. And that's what we aim to do. Today, our focus is on verses 1 through 4. And we simply want to begin by gaining an understanding of the sin of partiality that it may not divide us. Simple as that. To gain an understanding of the sin of partiality that it may not divide us. And we'll just follow a simple outline from James himself. And he begins with number one, the command. Verse 1, the command. Again, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He begins this new subject with a command. This is a present active imperative with the negative. All that means is he's saying, stop holding, stop having the habit of holding on to your faith with favoritism. It seems James's readers were in the habit of holding faith in Christ and holding favoritism at at the same time. They held on to Christ by faith in their right hand. That's good. But they held on to personal favoritism in their left hand. That's bad. These two just don't go together as we will see faith and favoritism. They're like oil and water. They don't mix. 
Let's just pull them apart. Now, what exactly is this personal favoritism? The word literally means receiving the face. So it means to pass judgment on someone simply based on their external appearance. And this is nothing new to us. I think we, I think we actually understand this pretty well. This phenomenon of favoritism is ingrained in our fallen human natures. James is going to use wealth as his key illustration, but we are familiar with passing judgment on others based on a, a whole host of other external criteria, like looks, clothing, social status, race, ethnicity, personality, intelligence, power, even the car you drive. The phrase, don't judge a book by its cover, comes to mind, but as humans, this seems to be exactly what we do all the time. As visual creatures, it seems we can't help it. The various wrappers things come in affect us and lead us to make some sort of prejudgment about what we think comes inside that wrapper. And this is why publishers actually spend a great deal of time and money on book covers. Because they know this is their one and only chance to form a, an impression and an expectation in your mind about what this book is about with hopes that you will buy it. My favorite book of antiquity, apart from the Bible, is Homer's The Iliad. It's about the Trojan War. I have two copies of it. I do not know why I have two copies of it. I just do. One copy has this picture of a generic Greek helmet on the front. It's not, not flashy. It lets you know you're going to read a book about an ancient Greek war. I'm fine with that. But the second copy has a picture of the Normandy invasion on D-Day in World War II. It's this gritty black and white photo of the D-Day invasion. Last I checked, the Iliad has nothing to do with World War II. But the cover is letting you know you're going to read a book about a gritty war. And that is what you get in the Iliad. Well, I like the book. But I think we, we get what this favoritism is, is all about. It's making some judgment on others simply based on their shell, their appearance. Why is this such a big deal, though? Because it seems we do this all the time. We do it with books and cars. What, what's the problem here? To be clear, this is a sin. James will say so down in verse 9. He says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So he tells us this is really a sin. Why is showing favoritism a sin? I want to spend a little extra time here just to make sure you really understand this and have it in your mind rightly. James is not saying it's, wrong, it's a sin or it's wrong to have favorites in life, like favorite food or, or a car or clothing, sports, hobbies, hairstyle. None of that is inherently sinful. We all have favorites and preferences. That's what makes up our personalities. And James is also not saying it's wrong to have favorite people in life. Isn't that what a spouse is or, or a best friend? Like Jonathan had a favorite friend and, and David and vice versa. There's nothing wrong with that. Favoritism becomes a sin, though, when it leads to the harm of others. It's not wrong to have favorites, but when it leads to any form of discrimination or injustice, it becomes the sin of partiality. Again, it's okay to show favor to someone. Do we not all favor our own children? And that's fine. But when showing favor to someone results in harm or injustice to someone else, there is a problem. 
And when you pass judgment on someone for their appearance and therefore treat them poorly and discriminate against them, well, you have sinned. Again, we'll find out this sin of partiality relates to the law of love, which is the essence of God's will for us horizontally between one another. As James will say down in verse 8, he says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. You see, when you show partiality and it results in some discrimination where someone is insulted or disrespected or offended, they lose a job, maybe even they're harmed. Well, you are surely not loving your neighbor as yourself. And so to God, that is, that's enough. That's sin. Down in verse 8, when James says that, he quotes Leviticus 19, verse 18. That's where that, that kalah comes from, love your neighbor as yourself. In that same context, though, just a few verses before, it says this, Leviticus 19, verse 15, where God told the people, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. I imagine this passage was somewhere in James's mind when he's writing James. But you see in scripture, this issue of partiality, it doesn't have to do with all the trivial preferences we have in life. That's not what this is about. This really has to do with rendering judgment or justice. And simply put, God hates injustice. So when you show any form of injustice through partiality, to God, that's a big deal. You are called to deal with your neighbor fairly. That's a large part of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And to use a modern example, you might imagine a man hiring an illegal immigrant to work in his field or work on his property. He promises him a fair wage, but when the work is all done, he pays him half. Because he knows, you know, the immigrant, he can't really protest out of fear of being deported or something bad happening to him. You see, that's a great evil before God. And understand that such partiality, it's, it's such a serious sin in Scripture because it's just so opposite to God and his character. Listen to Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 18. Deuteronomy 10, 17, he says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe, He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. See, God is impartial in his essence. Romans 2.11 says there is no partiality with God. Acts 10.34, Peter learned that God is not one to show partiality. So you see, we are called not to show partiality because that's how we reflect the character of God than the nature of God. Partiality is opposite God and his ways. Part of God's character is his perfect justice. He's a perfectly just and fair judge. You've seen those statues of Lady Justice, I'm sure. She was the ancient Roman personification of justice. And in her right hand, she holds the scales 
the scales of justice with which she weighs truth and evidence in the balance. In her left hand, she holds a sword with which she will swiftly execute a final judgment. But most notable is, is what? The blindfold, which indicates her impartiality. Justice should be blind, meaning it should be rendered objectively without regard to a person's status or wealth or rank or whatever. Well, God is the true father of justice. He's the actual ideal of justice. And he knows of no such perversions of justice. God will judge people. And it is right and righteous for him to judge people. But he will not judge showing favoritism or partiality. The rich, the mighty, the powerful will receive no preferential treatment in God's judgment. Rather, all will be laid bare before him with their superficial externals, meaning nothing. And he will judge based on deeds done in the flesh and the heart. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, for Samuel 16, verse 7. And so it's in this regard, as we deal with our neighbor, we are to reflect God, reflect God in his ways. Just like Christ himself told us in John seven twenty four, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And there it is. Now, at the end of the day, God's impartial justice is actually bad news for us because we are all sinners. We've all sinned. We're under his righteous judgment. And that also means you, you can't bribe your way out of it. Being rich or powerful, even president or king, won't help you at all in that judgment. God's justice will be pure and swift and inescapable and deserved. But the good news is that God sent Christ into the world to satisfy the demands of his justice on our behalf. Jesus died on the cross to pay the legal penalty for our sins, and only by paying in in our place could the demands of God's righteousness be met on our behalf that we might be released and go free and even enter heaven by being given Christ's own righteousness. This is salvation, and it comes not by God's justice, but by his grace and mercy through Christ on the cross where, where God's love and justice intermingle and intersect. Keep in mind, God is free to show such favor to save people. Remember, we said showing favor is not wrong. It's only wrong when it results in injustice. But as Paul argued in Romans 9, for God to save people results in no injustice to the unsaved. All who perish by rejecting Christ, well, they will receive nothing but pure justice for their sins. God is never unjust with them. They will just get what they deserve. And hence, Romans 9.14 says, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. But for us, who are recipients of God's grace and mercy, instead of his justice, well, we, we just give him thanks and we give him praise. We marvel at the 
glorious Lord Jesus Christ, as James says in verse 1. Kind of piles on the terms, our glorious Lord Christ Jesus. When you come to faith in this Christ, you, there has to be a recognition that you deserve judgment. You deserve to keep going and then fall off that cliff into the, the pit of punishment forever. Because we've all sinned against a holy and perfectly righteous God. But instead, God showed us a, a sacrificial love and he rescued us and delivered us in our distress. And so, if you know that, and for you here who have received that love, the, the simple point is this here in James. How can we not show others the same sacrificial love? We can't save others per se. We can't atone for their sins. We must just point them to Christ. But the, for us who have received it, it changes us. We aim to just now reflect God's glory in nature. How can we not do the same to others? How can we not show help to others who are in need? How can we not, or how can we treat others poorly just because they appear different from us? In God's eyes, before salvation, we were merely his enemies. We were despised and destitute, and rightly so, and we deserve that. But he still showed us love in Christ. So just how can we not show that same love of God to others, even the least of these in society? And the answer is we can't. We, we must do the same. We now bear Christ's name. And so we must reflect his glory by showing the same love to, to the world, to our neighbors, and especially to those in the household of God. So I hope you see now how a little bit of a deeper understanding of, of God's character and his nature and the work of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ together show why this type of favoritism is a sin, a serious sin before God. We spend extra time on this first point, just so you are crystal clear in your mind. It's simply utterly inconsistent for a Christian to show partiality to others leading to injustice. It's a plain contradiction of the faith which we have received. Hopefully you're starting to see why this often ignored problem is, is such a problem, even in the church. I feel like we could use an illustration, though, to, to bring it together and show how it rears its head in the church and why it's wrong in the church. And, and that's what James gives to us. So secondly, he does so by way of contrast. So number two, the contrast. Number one, the command. Secondly, now let's look at the contrast. Look at verse two. He says next, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. You can stop there for a second. James starts off by setting up a contrast. It almost sounds like one of those joke setups, like two men walking to a bar. But this is not a joke. It's two men walking to a church. There's an assembly going on. Most likely, it's their weekly worship service. Two men enter. They appear to both be visitors, but otherwise, their appearance is not the same. The first is described by his attire. He's wearing a gold ring. He's dressed in fine clothes. The word for gold ring literally means gold-fingered and likely envisions that his 
All of his fingers were covered in gold rings. The upper class equestrian class in Roman society were known for wearing gold rings on or rings on all their fingers of their left hand. There are even shops in Rome where you could rent rings for special occasions. And people still do this today. People still like to flaunt their wealth. Although I think in our society, they've gone beyond gold to diamonds, right? I think it's a new status symbol. Diamond encrusted rings and necklaces and earrings and watches. And some are even starting to place diamond studded caps over their teeth, which just seems like a nightmare of canker sores to me. But, <laughs> but these are all signs that a person has way more money than they know what to do with. So this rich man comes in. He's also wearing fine clothes. It speaks of shining clothes. It's the same term used to speak of the garments of angels. Likely, though, it's just a reference to the white and spotless garments worn by the wealthy. In a world without washing machines and synthetic detergents, it was only the rich, the rich rather, who had nice clothes that stayed nice, that stayed white and clean, and so forth. So clearly, this first man is rich. James doesn't call him rich, but he doesn't have to. It's, it's clear from his attire. Especially in that age, he was definitely of the upper class. But the second man, however... Not so much. He's outright called the poor man, and it's only further evidenced by his attire, his dirty clothes. This speaks of stained, soiled, grimy clothes. Probably the only clothes he owned. They would have been sullied by his labor, and they would have carried the the stench of hard labor as well. I'm sure, especially for the men in the room, you know what it's like to labor hard all day outside, in the sun, in the yard, and by the end of the day, you know the meaning of the word filth. You're just filthy. But now imagine you don't have the luxury of taking a shower or changing your clothes. That's the only clothes you have. And tomorrow you have to work just as hard. We take all that for granted. But this poor man was just a laborer, likely, had nothing else. If he had better clothes, he surely would have worn them to his visit to the assembly that day. But you get the contrast. The contrast continues in verse 3 with how the church reacts to these two men. Verse 3. He says, the two men walk into the church. And verse 3, you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And to the poor man, you say, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. This response is, So natural, right? It's the way of the world. But it should not be the way of the church. The world naturally pays attention to the rich man, showing him preference and favoritism. And I think there's this latent sense in most people that they show preference to the rich and the famous because somehow, some way, they feel it might come back to them or it might benefit them. And this... Those in the church, rather, are not immune from this type of thinking. You think there have never been church leaders who have said, hey, we really need to roll out the red carpet for this new visitor. I heard he owns three hotels. We've got a new building project. He could be a big giver, so we need to butter him up. You think that's never happened in the churches of America? This type of thinking should never be found in the church, but sadly it is. So in this scenario, this rich man is given the seat of honor and preference, even in the early church, there were records where they had ushers to seat people. 
And this rich man is taken front and center. In the ancient synagogue, there were typically only a few benches up front. Everything else was standing room or you're sitting on the dirt floor. You remember how Christ himself referenced the chief seats in the synagogues, which the Pharisees loved. They were the best seats in the house, closest to the teacher. And if you had pristine garments on, you don't want to sit on the floor. So this rich man walks in. He's got fine clothes. Let me, let me take you up front. Let me give you a nice seat. You don't have to sit on the ground. Meanwhile, this poor man was shown no favor, no preference, not even common honor or respect. In fact, he was totally disrespected and shown partiality in a negative way. You, you stand over there. You, you stand in the back. Or you can sit down by my footstool. Which, when you think about it, that's really a double dishonor, that last one. It means there is a person who had the luxury of a chair and a footstool. They were sitting down, and then they were propping their feet up on a footstool so that their feet wouldn't get dirty by the floor. But this poor visitor walks in, and first, this guy won't even get up to give him a seat. That would have been a show of love. But he won't even move his feet and give him his footstool which would have been like just a common courtesy. Instead, he tells the guy, you can sit on the floor next to my footstool. Like, thanks a lot. I guess sit next to your smelly feet. But the contrast is clear. The command was given, show no favoritism. Show no partiality. But James builds a contrast letting us know it happens in the church. This is what it looks like. This is what it can look like in the church. And we're led to believe this, this was taking place in these early Christian communities, just like it takes place today. But it should not be this way. And so to finish, James passes down a verdict on this type of behavior in the church. And so we come to number three, the conviction. Number three, the conviction. He says in verse four, rendering his, his verdict, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? James gives a verdict here on the partiality shown to the rich man over the poor. And he does so in the form of two questions, both expecting the answer of yes. First, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? Yes, they have. The same word was used back in chapter 1, verse 6, to speak of the man who was doubting and unstable in all of his ways. He's double-minded. The one who makes such a distinction between the rich and the poor and shows partiality reveals the same double-minded nature as that man from chapter 1. He reveals a, a divided attitude toward God. Remember, the claim of, of faith in Christ is completely inconsistent with this type of discrimination. And so you're, you're double-minded. Our unity in Christ has eliminated, however, all such superficial distinctions. Like Galatians 3.28 says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This doesn't mean that we no longer have meaningful distinctions like male and female. It just means that in God's eyes, our value or worth is tied to our identity in Christ. And so we should treat all people with dignity, being made in the image of God, and, and a special love for those in the household 
of the faith. When you show partiality, though, you are weighing the worth of people. And you don't have the right to do that. Instead, in the church, we are called to see one another in Christ as brothers and sisters, as fellow children of God, no matter if they're rich or poor, black or white, male or female. This oneness in Christ produces a supernatural unity that witnesses to the world. But partiality and favoritism only lead to division and strife. It tears the body apart. Many churches have felt the schisms that come as a result of partiality. And again, it should not be this way. And so James poses a second question in verse 4. Have you not become judges with evil motives? Again, yes, they have. He's using judges here in the negative sense. This is a judgment we don't have the right to make. He'll pick this back up in chapter 4. In fact, you can flip the page to James 4 and look at verses 11 and 12, what he will say in a little while. James 4, 11, he says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Obviously, this is not forbidding us from confronting others in sin. When dealing with sin in the church, we must make such judgments. But James is referring to speaking evil of others. This is where you pass a personal judgment on others and so discriminate against them. Which is why he says, do not speak against one another. Don't slander. Don't defame. Don't tear down others. Which is most often the form, the expression, our partiality takes. And it always comes from evil motives, not righteous motives. As he says back in chapter 2, verse 4. Like I said earlier, I think people tend to favor the rich and the famous. Because they want to be rich and famous. They want the high social standing that comes from rubbing shoulders with the, the elite class. And they feel their worth increased when they show favor and they're just associated with the rich and the powerful. But the poor are viewed simply as drains. They drain away our time, our money, our attention. And if you're too close to them, it's going to drag you down. It's going to drag your status down. But these are all worldly, evil motives. James says, did not Christ spend most of his time in ministry with those who are on the very bottom of the social totem pole? And if you follow Christ, you, you are to share his heart. This doesn't mean the lower members of society are inherently more righteous or that they will even necessarily believe the gospel. But it does mean we are to treat them with the same dignity and respect as all people especially in Christ's church. The command, the contrast, the conviction. James isn't done. In verses 5 and following, he's going to add the corroboration. He's going to pile on some corroborating evidence to really drive home why this is a big problem in the church, this sin of favoritism. We're going to save that for our special attention next time. But for now, just reflect on the main lesson learned, an understanding of the sin of partiality. Verse 1 captures the thrust 
of this point. Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. They don't mix. And so examine your lives individually and for us as a church, because this sin is still alive and well today. We need to identify it and remove it wherever it's found. And today, such partiality may look different. We don't have ushers who seat people here at this church. And if we did, I don't think we would fall prey to this sort of thing. But I can imagine more subtle forms of partiality taking place. For example, think of this. Think of all the one another's in scripture. You know, like love one another, serve one another, encourage one another, help one another, pray for one another, all the one another's. Do you do those? I hope you would say yes, but do you do those without partiality? Or do you maybe find yourself practicing the one another's, but with some favoritism mixed in? This, I find, still happens. Maybe you'll say like, you know, well, I would never make a poor person sit on the floor. I would happily give up my seat for him. And that's good. But is that it? Say two families visit the church. One is a middle-class white family. They're clean cut. They're dressed sharp. Their kids look nice. Outside the car, he's got a, a golf sticker on it. And you think, oh, maybe a new golfing buddy. So you visit with them after church. You show them around. You invite them to lunch. Why? Well, let's say you are genuinely trying to welcome and encourage and just minister to a new family. That's great. That's great. But there's a second visiting family. They're a little different. They took the bus. The kids are in tattered clothes. The dad has frayed pants on the bottom. The mom is not wearing any makeup and has no stylish clothes. And so let me ask you, do you visit them with the same enthusiasm and love? Do you welcome them? Do you greet them? Do you ask them to lunch too? Or do you secretly ignore them because in your heart, you don't really want them to come around. They, they make you feel uncomfortable. You think they might be trouble. You don't want to invite them to lunch because maybe you'll get stuck with the bill and have to pay for them all. Or you don't want to talk to that mom because it looks like you'll, you know, we're not really going to have anything in common. We're just, we're so different. You're not going to get anything out of talking to them. So you just kind of ignore them. But you see now how that is the same sin of partiality that James is talking about here. You're making a value judgment on people and treating them different simply based on their appearance. And we're also prone to this, to show favor to people who who are like us, who look like us, who have personalities like us, who share our hobbies. But you must never let that prevent you from showing that the same love and ministry to others who maybe are different and look different. Because don't they need the same welcome, the same love, the same prayers, the same ministry, the same encouragement? If Jesus came only to minister to those who were lovely, he would have ministered to nobody. But share his heart and be stretched to show no partiality to others. And as you do so, you're going to find the church and even this local church growing in the the supernatural unity that Christ promised. And he's going to use that unity as he promises to to witness to the world of, of his glory. This is what the glorious Lord Jesus Christ does. This is what's at stake in the church with the sin of partiality. 
Remember, what is the church? It is the body of Christ. And there's only one body. It's the one new man where Christ broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He has established peace with God for us and then peace with one another. He brings together unlike people into one new man, having removed the enmity, Ephesians 2.16. And so the church is God's plan for the nations, for the unity of all the nations. It's the church. The church is the only place where black and white, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile can truly come together as one and worship together in joy and in truth. That doesn't happen when partiality is alive and well. It just divides. So work with God's plan for the nations, not against it by putting aside all partiality and prejudice. It simply has no place in the church. Now, I mentioned at the beginning the centuries-old division between Jews and Arabs. Going all the way back to Isaac and Ishmael, and Jews and Arabs have been divided ever since, technically brothers. But did you know there's one place, at least one place today, where Jews and Arabs come together as one? It's the church. For over two decades now, there have been gatherings in Jerusalem where an estimated 1,000 Messianic Jews, that's Jewish Christians, and Arab Christians, Arabs who've converted to Christ, they come together to pray and praise and worship God. These Jews and Arabs grew up absolutely hating one another, but as they came to Christ, they came to forgiveness and love and unity. That's a supernatural unity. Our world Still can't solve peace in the Middle East. There it is. Together they shared their testimonies. Some Jews growing up, they would walk to the Wailing Wall and they would pray that bad things would happen to the Arabs. Some Arabs would utter curses every time they saw an Orthodox Jew. But one Jewish girl at this conference said, quote, as I washed the feet of my Arab sister, I was able to ask forgiveness for the way my family, my people look at them. End quote. Later, she said that it was only the love from Yeshua, that's Jesus, that enabled them to forgive and love one another. This is God's plan for this world, for the nations. You want peace in the Middle East, for example? Well, there it is. That's the only hope. There's never going to be political peace anywhere on the planet if sin reigns. But only Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is the answer. Only he can give people peace with God, which thereafter establishes our peace and unity with one another. No matter what you look like, no matter your shell, your wrapper, it doesn't matter. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we participate in that peace as we treat others in the church without partiality, without bias, without discrimination. So may we do our part to show the world this supernatural peace that comes in Christ, that they too may know the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we we bow down, we pray and praise you this morning for your glory. We see the glory of God in the face of Christ for who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, you are our peace. You came to call those who are far off near. 
to draw us near to you, to God, to reconcile us. First and foremost, to, to God. We were separated by our sin from our Heavenly Father, from our Creator, and we deserved His righteous judgment. It would have been only just for us to perish forever, but in love you sent Christ to die for us, to, to pay the penalty of your justice that we might be redeemed and, and brought together to you, reconciled, made, made at peace with God. And Lord, in that peace, we come to look around and find a bunch of other people who are so unlike us, and they're unlovely, and they're sinners too, like us, but yet we've all been made new and washed by the same blood of Christ, and now we all look the same. We're just brothers and sisters in a body that has been redeemed. And so give that, with these truths, Lord, establish and and express the unity that we are to have in Christ. And may we put any old ways of the flesh away, any of the prejudices and partialities that remain. They're in our flesh. We are still sinners, and we are prone to do this, Lord. But may we constantly see people in Christ and through Christ, and love them in Christ and through Christ, and share the gospel with them that they too may know the glory of Christ which is seen in the unity of the body. So bless us, and may we constantly preserve the unity of the body and the bond of peace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.